Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Naturally, the book starts with their retelling of the Beringer Saunier Renle Chateau story, which we've already covered as the initial topic that caught Henry Lincoln's attention and led to the BBC pseudo documentaries. But while at the end of his films, Lincoln comes to the conclusion that the treasure found by Saunier was actually the secrets of the Pentacle, whatever the fuck that means, here we're back in the midst of a traditional treasure hunt. The history of the village and its environs includes many possible sources of hidden gold or jewels. The Cathar heretics, for example, were reputed to possess something of fabulous and even sacred value, which, according to a number of legends, was the Holy Grail. There was also the vanished treasure of the Knights Templar, whose Grand Master, Bertrand de Blanchefort, commissioned certain mysterious excavations in the vicinity. There were other possible treasures as well. Between the 5th and 8th centuries, much of modern France was ruled by the Merovingian dynasty, which included King Dagobert II. Rennes-le-Chateau in Dagobert's time was a Visigoth bastion, and Dagobert himself was married to a Visigoth princess. The town might have constituted a sort of royal treasury, and there are documents which speak of great wealth amassed by Dagobert for military conquest and concealed in the environs of Rennes-le-Chateau. If Saunier discovered some such depository, it would explain the reference in the codes to Dagobert. The Cathars, the Templars, Dagobert II. And there was yet another possible treasure, the vast booty accumulated by the Visigoths during their tempestuous advance through Europe. This might have included something more than conventional booty, possibly items of immense relevance, both symbolic and literal, to Western religious tradition. It might, in short, have included the legendary treasure of the Temple of Jerusalem. But shortly, we learn a brand new evidence-free truth, that the wealth Saunier flaunted in his rebuilding of the church and surrounding areas is the result of blackmail have come not from anything of intrinsic financial value, but from knowledge of some kind. If so, could this knowledge have been turned to fiscal account? Could it have been used to blackmail somebody, for example? Could Cernier's wealth have been his payment for silence? We knew that he had received money from Johann von Habsburg. At the same time, his relations with the Austrian Archduke, according to all accounts, were notably cordial. On the other hand, there was one institution which, throughout Saunier's later career, seems to have been distinctly afraid of him. The Vatican. Could Saunier have been blackmailing the Vatican? Or was it? According to the fan mail Lincoln received after the BBC movies, the treasure isn't material at all, but a secret. The 
secret of the pinnacle or whatever? Fuck no, Dana. That's old news. Try to keep up. Of all these letters, one seemed to warrant special attention. It came from a retired Anglican priest. Our correspondent wrote with categorical certainty and authority. The treasure, he declared flatly, did not involve gold or precious stones. On the contrary, it consisted of incontrovertible proof that the crucifixion was a fraud and that Jesus was alive as late as A.D. 45. This claim sounded flagrantly absurd. What could possibly comprise incontrovertible proof that Jesus survived the crucifixion? We were unable to imagine anything which could not be disbelieved or repudiated. At the same time, the sheer extravagance of the assertion begged for clarification and elaboration. Wait, so now they've decided there isn't any treasure in the traditional pirate sense? Could you maybe explain the traditional pirate sense of treasure? Ah, uh, you're bastard. Our matey, run up the skulls and crossbones. There's Spanish galleons to be filled to the brim with ducats, just waiting to be plundered. Lash yourselves to the mizzen, boys. It's pieces of eight or David Jones's locker for the lot of you scallywags. You're the gift that keeps on giving, Dana. So, they can't decide at all what this treasure is supposed to be, but that's the least of the problems in the early going. More concerning are the baseless claims these guys make about the topics we've previously covered in depth. For example, they suggest that this was the core of Cathar belief. The majority of Cathars seem to have regarded him as a prophet, no different from any other, a mortal being who, on behalf of the principle of love, died on the cross. There was nothing mystical, nothing divine about the crucifixion, if indeed it was relevant at all, which many Cathars appear to have doubted. You'll note that a very human Jesus is pretty much the opposite of the unblemished, immaterial, all-spirit Christ that qualified scholars cite as the mainstream of the Cathars' theology. The Holy Blood guys also conjure far more ties between the Templars and the Cathars than are warranted. For example, they connect up the Templars' confessions of worshipping a head of some kind, the mysterious Bathomet discussed previously, and suggest that because some knights in their confessions before King Philip's lawyers mentioned whipping the head with ropes or cords of some kind, for some reason, and because some Cathars were known to wear a sacred cord of some kind per the Holy Blood guys, that serves as evidence of a connection between the two groups. Really? But that breathtaking leap pales in comparison to their next conclusion. The cord, mentioned in the last item, is reminiscent of the Cathars, who were also alleged to have worn a sacred cord of some kind. But most striking in the list is the head's purported capacity to engender riches, make trees flower, and bring fertility to the land. These properties coincide remarkably with those ascribed in the romances to the Holy Grail. Wait, they think Bathomet is a Holy Grail? Well, maybe on this page they do, but they change their mind a bunch within the course of this one book. They're not going to be pinned down to one ludicrous suggestion, Dana. They also rewrite the history of the Templars, including why they were in Jerusalem in the first place, and what they were doing while they were there, and then they take those baseless speculations and make even less warranted assumptions on top of them. In the mid-12th century, a pilgrim to the Holy Land, one Johann von Würzburg, wrote of a visit to the so-called Stables of Solomon. These stables, situated directly beneath the temple itself, are still visible. They were large enough, Johann reported, to hold 2,000 horses, and it was in these stables that the Templars quartered their mounts. According to at least one other historian, the Templars were using these stables for their horses as early as 1124. It would thus seem likely that the fledgling order, almost immediately after its inception, undertook excavations beneath the temple. Such excavations might well imply that the knights were actively looking for something. It might even imply 
that they were deliberately sent to the Holy Land with the express commission of finding something. If this supposition is valid, it would explain a number of anomalies. Their installation in the royal palace, for example, and the silence of the chronicler. But if they were sent to Palestine, who sent them? We supposed that something was discovered in the Holy Land, either by accident or design, something of immense import, which aroused the interest of some of Europe's most influential noblemen. We further supposed that this discovery involved, directly or indirectly, a great deal of potential wealth, as well, perhaps, as something else, something that had to be kept secret, something which could only be divulged to a small number of high-ranking lords. Begging the question! We know, Dana. We know. But the whole time they keep reminding you they are super skeptical dudes who aren't just accepting whatever nonsense they read. Obviously. We were extremely skeptical, like most people, about conspiracy theories of history. And most of the assertions quoted struck us as irrelevant, improbable, and or absurd. But the fact remained that certain people were promulgating them, and doing so quite seriously, quite seriously. And there was reason to believe from positions of considerable power. So, it's fun batting these declarations around like a wounded mouse, but the preponderance of the book is dedicated to proving to their readers that the Priory of Sion was behind a huge, millennia-spanning conspiracy that connects the Dan Brown, Jesus Mary Magdalene bloodline story, the Templars, the Cathars, the Merovingian kings, the Rosicrucians, and a bunch of other shit into one big plot. So let's talk about that. First of all, you remember that Pierre Plantard, the Priory member whom Lincoln interviewed for his ridiculous documentaries, stated that Jean Cocteau, the famous filmmaker and poet, was a recent grandmaster of the Priory. Well, he wasn't the only notable person named as a former leader. In fact, one of the documents that the Holy Blood guys dug up in the Bibliothèque Nationale was a complete list of all grandmasters. Not that the Holy Blood guys just believed this list was accurate from the get-go. When we first saw this list, it immediately provoked our skepticism. On the one hand, it includes a number of names which one would automatically expect to find on such a list. Names of famous individuals associated with the occult and esoteric. Nicolas Flamel, for instance, is perhaps the most famous and well-documented of medieval alchemists. Robert Flood, 17th century philosopher, was an exponent of hermetic thought and other arcane subjects. The list also includes a number of illustrious and improbable names. Names like Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Filippepi, who is better known as Botticelli. There are names of distinguished scientists like Robert Boyle and Sir Isaac Newton. During the last two centuries, the Priore de Sion's grandmasters are alleged to have included such important literary and cultural figures as Victor Hugo, Claude Debussy, and Jean Cocteau. By including such names, the list in the dossier secret could not but appear suspect. It was almost inconceivable that some of the individuals cited had presided over a secret society, and still more, a secret society devoted to occult and esoteric interests. Boyle and Newton, for example, are hardly names that people in the 20th century associate with the occult and esoteric. It's worth noting that da Vinci's appearance on that list is a key reason for the painter's prominence in the Dan Brown novel. The three Holy Blood musketeers end up deciding that this, as well as the other documents they've found, contain many clues that mesh with their other research, and therefore that the odds that all of these documents were forgeries in support of a hoax is unlikely. It's not as if the Bibliothèque Nationale documents were the only ones they found discussing the Priory. There were other unrelated researchers who were chronicling these topics. And in some instances, those authors had met with some strangely sinister ends. In 1973, a book was published entitled Les Dessus d'une Ambition Politique, The Undercurrents of a Political Ambition. This book, written by a Swiss journalist named Mathieu Paoli, recounts the author's exhaustive attempts to investigate the Priore de Sion. Like us, Monsieur Paoli eventually established contact with a representative of the order, whom he does not identify by name. 
but Monsieur Parley did not have the prestige of the BBC behind him, and the representative he met would seem to have been of lesser status than Monsieur Plantar. Nor was his representative as communicative as Monsieur Plantar was with us. When we inquired about him, we were told that in 1977 or 1978, he had been shot as a spy by the Israeli government for attempting to sell secrets to the Arabs. Plus, many of the bibliotheque documents had named authors like Swiss researcher Henri Labineau, a pseudonym for Austrian art historian Leo Shidloff. And finally, nobody seemed to be making a dime off this stuff, so why would anyone go to the trouble of faking all of it? Decent point. And then there's the fact that Pierre Plantard is a documented descendant of a line that some would suggest has a legitimate claim on the French monarchy should such an institution ever return. And restoring the Merovingian line does seem to be at least one of the long-term aims of the Priory. So clearly there was something there. But what the Holy Blood guys turned it into is an awe-inspiring exercise in inflated claims, bizarre assumptions, and laughable scholarship. For example, this. By virtue of his dual blood, Merovee was said to have been endowed with an impressive array of superhuman powers. According to tradition, Merovingian monarchs were occult adepts, initiates in arcane sciences, practitioners of esoteric arts. They were often called the Sorcerer Kings. By virtue of some miraculous property in their blood, they could allegedly heal by laying on of hands, and according to one account, the tassels at the fringes of their robes were deemed to possess miraculous curative powers. They were said to be capable of clairvoyant or telepathic communication with beasts and with the natural world around them, and to wear a powerful magical necklace. They were said to possess an arcane spell which protected them and granted them phenomenal longevity, which history does not seem to confirm. They all supposedly bore a distinctive birthmark, which rendered them immediately identifiable and which attested to their semi-divine or sacred blood. This birthmark reputedly took the form of a red cross, either over the heart or between the shoulder blades. They seem to accept all of these claims about the Merovingians having some sort of superpowers. These, they naturally assume, are evidence that these nobles descended from Jesus, who was in some way superhuman. But recall that they think Jesus was just a dude. Remember, they went so far as to falsely claim that the Cathars thought the same thing as well, and that Constantine was trying to cover up the fact that most Christians thought Jesus wasn't divine back in the 400s, as repeated in the Da Vinci Code. But then, where do these miraculous powers come from? They also state the Priory documents link the Merovingians to the House of Benjamin, one of the tribes of ancient Israel, and they want to do that because they also decide that Mary Magdalene was from the House of Benjamin. Evidence? Who needs evidence? And in turn, Jesus was supposed to be of the house of David. Which the canonical gospel writers and other early Christians do, in fact, go to a great deal of trouble to try to prove, though few biblical scholars accept this claim. Thus, Jesus and Mary's bloodline is royal on both sides, and therefore they naturally spawned another noble dynasty when Mary arrived in France, which is what the Holy Blood guys think happened. And of course, they eventually come around to describing Mary's womb as the real Holy Grail, as we already heard reproduced in the Da Vinci Code movie. This also explains the French language pun implied in their title. 
That is Holy Grail in Old French is S-A-N-G-R-A-A-L. While the term for royal blood is S-A-N-G-R-E-A-L. So these doofuses think the whole reason we talk about a holy cup or plate as a grail instead of a line of descent from Jesus, which it actually refers to, is because medieval chronicles fucked up their spelling. Yeah, they really suggest that. And by the way, we're not qualified to evaluate, but we've heard francophones suggest that they even screwed up the terms themselves. And to put this to rest, we're going to let Dana Unicorn and her husband, LG Sweet, both of whom are fluent in French, hash this thing out. So, Danica, tell me, are you sold on this whole holy blood, holy grail theory of how we got to be looking for a holy grail? No, I'm not. I think it's way too convenient. And I also don't think that's how language works. So I can imagine like a one-time confusion, but I find it unconvincing that everyone would make the same mistake in pronunciation and then draw the same faulty conclusion. Yeah, I mean, just the just the BS test on this is, hold on a second, did you say holy blood or holy grail? Did you say sangreal or sangreal? Like, usually you, you ask somebody, and if, you're, if you've got a totally bizarre interpretation, like suddenly you're saying grail instead of blood, you usually ask the other person if you've heard them right. It's a bit like those song lyrics that people mishear. No one mishears them in the same way all the time. I'm not French, but I can tell you one thing. Uh, a thousand years ago, French was very, very, very different from what it is today. And if uh, you need that put in perspective, 2,000 years ago, French was literally Latin. So in 2,000 years, you can go from Latin all the way to a completely different language like modern French. And a thousand years ago is halfway through that process. I think it's one of those sort of cutesy explanations that are fitted retroactively on a problem that never existed in the first place. And that's ultimately not very sort of intellectually satisfying or even funny. I mean, I don't know. I would have expected something a little bit more far-fetched from uh, this particular character. There's a modern word for this. I'd say this solution feels a bit retconned. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, you lovely people, you. But on the other hand, who cares? The whole thing is really stupid. The Holy Blood guys also decide that the focus on King Arthur's court and the Holy Grail was a mistake or conspiracy, and in fact the Grail was the bloodline of the Merovingians, and in France instead of England. Why? Because it's convenient for their presupposed nonsense. It's really important here that you understand we're taking on the best arguments of Lincoln, Bajan, and Lee. There are hundreds of pages of dipshittery here. For an example, this is one of our favorites of their dumbest class of arguments. In the narrative of the Gospels, there's a tradition that the Roman authorities would release a prisoner chosen by the crowd during Passover each year. They ask for Barabbas, who is a criminal accused of sedition, to be released instead of Jesus, who is about to be crucified. Scholars don't believe any such event ever happened, of course. The Romans don't give a shit about Passover, a Jewish holy day, and wouldn't let any seditionists avoid execution anyway. The theological point of the story is that everyone, represented by the bloodthirsty crowd, is responsible for the sin of murdering Jesus. But, of course, the Holy Blood guys have determined it's probably something else entirely. Of all the discrepancies, inconsistencies, and improbabilities in the Gospels, the choice of Barabbas is among the most striking and most inexplicable. One modern writer has proposed an intriguing and plausible explanation. He suggests that Barabbas was the son of Jesus, and Jesus a legitimate king. If this were the case, the choice of Barabbas would make sense. One must imagine an oppressed populace confronted with the imminent extermination of their spiritual and political ruler, the Messiah, whose advent had formerly promised so much. In such circumstances, would not the preservation of the bloodline be paramount, taking precedence over everything else? 
Would not a people faced with the dreadful choice prefer to see their king sacrificed in order that his offspring and his line might survive? So the crowd called for Jesus's blood to save his adult son Barabbas, even though there is no indication that Jesus ever had any progeny. And you would think that maybe the gospel writers would have mentioned this relationship in their discussion of Jesus's death. We told you it was stupid. This is all building to their claim about the crucifixion itself, specifically that it was faked. According to our scenario, a mock crucifixion on private ground was arranged with Pilate's collusion by certain of Jesus's supporters. It would have been arranged not by adherence of the message, but by adherence to the bloodline, immediate family and or members of an inner circle. These individuals may well have had Essene connections or have been Essenes themselves. To the adherence of the message, however, the rank and file of Jesus's following, the stratagem would not have been divulged. On being carried to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, Jesus would have required medical attention, for which an Essene healer would have been present. And afterwards, when the tomb was found to be vacant, an emissary would again have been necessary. An emissary unknown to the rank-and-file disciples. This emissary would have had to reassure the unsuspecting adherents of the message to act as intermediary between Jesus and his following, and to forestall charges of grave robbing or grave desecration against the Romans, which might have provoked dangerous civic disturbances. Jesus wasn't dead when he was taken down from the cross, and he and Mary and their kid, or kids, relocated to France and intermarried with the Merovingians. And there was all kinds of evidence of this, which was in the temple in Jerusalem, which is why the Priory of Sion created the Knights Templar and sent them to the Holy Land in the first place, using the Crusades as cover so they could recover the long-hidden documents. Yeah, that's pretty much it. The whole book is just a series of wouldn't-it-be-interesting-if statements, but they then go on to assume these idle fantasies are real and build still more fantasies on top of those. Then they come to seemingly logical conclusions based on their rank speculations. In ancient Judaism, religion and politics were inseparable. The Messiah was to be a priest-king whose authority encompassed spiritual and secular domains alike. It is thus likely, indeed probable, that the temple housed official records pertaining to Israel's royal line, if Jesus was indeed king of the Jews, the temple is almost certain to have contained copious information relating to him. It may even have contained his body. By 1100, Jesus' descendants would have risen to prominence in Europe. They themselves would have known their pedigree and ancestry, but they might not have been able to prove their identity to the world at large, and such proof may well have been deemed necessary for their subsequent designs. If it were known that such proof existed, or even possibly existed, in the precincts of the temple, no effort would have been spared to find it. This would explain the role of the Knights Templar, who, under a cloak of secrecy, undertook excavations beneath the temple in the so-called Stables of Solomon. On the basis of the evidence we examined, there would seem to be little question that the Knights Templar were in fact sent to the Holy Land with the express purpose of finding or obtaining something, and they would seem to have accomplished their mission. They would seem to have found what they were sent to find, and to have brought it back to Europe. What became of it then remains a mystery. But there seems little question Something was concealed in the vicinity of Rennes-le-Chateau, for which a contingent of German miners was imported under the most stringent security to excavate and construct a hiding place. One can only speculate about what might have been concealed there. It may have been Jesus's mummified body. It may have been the equivalent, so to speak, of Jesus's marriage license and all the birth certificates of his children. It may have been something of comparably explosive import. Any or all of these items might have been referred to as the Holy Grail. Any or all of these items might, by accident or design, have passed to the Cathar heretics and comprised part of the mysterious treasure of Montségur. 
It reminds us of the Leonard Nimoy introduction to a classic Simpsons episode. Hello, I'm Leonard Nimoy. The following tale of alien encounters is true, and by true, I mean false. It's all lies, but they're entertaining lies, and in the end, isn't that the real truth? The answer is no. Or, as Arthurian scholar Richard Barber commented, it would take a book as long as the original to refute and dissect the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail point by point. It's essentially a text which proceeds by innuendo, not by refutable scholarly debate. Though as Dr. Spence told us, these guys really appeared to believe what they were selling. I think it was Michael Bajant I heard talk once, and you know, I, I had no doubt that he sincerely believed what it was that he was saying. Because it seemed to him that all oh, this this is the thing that explains it. it fits all of these pieces together. You've got a plot there, you know. You've got your screenplay. You've got a story. But I think that they simply took that as being the story. And then because they were historical work, which you can't copyright, Dan Brown said, gee, this would be a great plot for a book. And, and, and for another book after that, and maybe some more after that. But for all the nonsense and self-indulgent doofusry of the Holy Blood Gang, they do deserve credit for one thing, which is popularizing in English-speaking countries one of the most astonishing discoveries of the 20th century the ongoing existence of an ancient, truly secret society whose members included an array of the most important figures of the past and which is dedicated to bringing about a better world. The authors hang a lot of hopes on Plantard and the Priory and its treasure trove of secrets. We could not, and still cannot, prove the accuracy of our conclusion. It remains an hypothesis. But it is a plausible hypothesis which makes coherent sense. It explains a great deal and it constitutes a more historically likely account than any we have encountered of the events and personages which 2,000 years ago imprinted themselves on Western consciousness and, in the centuries that followed, shaped our culture and civilization. If we cannot prove our conclusion, however, we have received abundant evidence from both their documents and their representatives that the Priore de Sion can. On the basis of their written hints and their personal conversation with us, we're prepared to believe that Sion does possess something, something which does in some way amount to incontrovertible proof of the hypothesis we have advanced. The religious impulse can be channeled in any of innumerable directions. It is a source of immense potential power, and it is all too often ignored or overlooked by modern governments founded on and fettered to reason alone. The religious impulse reflects a profound psychological and emotional need. And psychological and emotional needs are every bit as real as the need for bread, for shelter, for material security. We know that the Prairie de Sion is not a lunatic fringe organization. We know it is well financed and includes or commands sympathy from men in responsible and influential positions in politics, economics, media, the arts. We know that since 1956 it has increased its membership more than fourfold, as if it were mobilizing or preparing for something. And Monsieur Plantard told us personally that he and his order were working to a more or less precise timetable. We also know that since 1956, Scion has been making certain information available, discreetly, tantalizingly, in piecemeal fashion, in measured quantities just sufficient to provide alluring hints. And according to them, back in 1982 when this book was written, the Priory was even then in the process of fomenting a peaceful political transformation in France. Monsieur Plantard echoed Monsieur Chaumet in stating that in the near future, there would be a dramatic upheaval in France. Not a revolution, but a radical change which would pave the way for the reinstatement of a monarchy. This assertion was not made with any prophetic histrionics. On the contrary, Monsieur Plantard simply assured us of it, very quietly, very matter-of-factly, and very definitively. Again, Plantard and the Priory. 
unlike the rest of the book, seem legit. But... But what? But you're about to tell us the entire story of the Priory of Sion is full of shit too, right? Oh man, is it. So, Pierre Plantard isn't of royal blood? No. And none of these luminaries like Da Vinci and Isaac Newton and Victor Hugo were part of the historical Priory of Sion? No. And the Priory didn't found the Knights Templar? No, mostly because the actual honest-to-God Priory wasn't formed until 1956 by one, let's see, oh, Monsieur Pierre Plantard. So you've been lying to us this whole time. Au contraire, Miss Unicorn. If you rewind to what we previously said about the Priory, we indicated it's a real secret society, which it is since Pierre Plantard invented it, and that there exist documents indicating that the society stretches back to the Crusades, and that Plantard is of the royal blood of the Merovingians. Those are lies, though. Yeah, but the lies are told by the documents. We just told you that the documents exist, not that they were legitimate. Pretty sneaky, sis. My head hurts again. Knock back an ibuprofen with a shot of whiskey because this only gets more confusing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.